Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to lead us into what you would want us to see as we go through this. We thank you and all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Jeremiah chapter 3. We've been covering Jeremiah's message to the people that they have been leading their lives in sin and abandoning God. Uh, he talked about the prophecy of, that he gave to Josiah, the last good king of Israel. And that, and even in Josiah's day, the people were already, their hearts were not following God as much as Josiah and his rules were getting them to follow. And so he says, even though Josiah was trying to do this, you have not followed me with your whole heart. And so this is where we are with that aspect. And we're looking at verse 14. Turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And it shall come to pass when you be multiplied and increase in the land. In those days, says the Lord, they shall say no more, the ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, Neither shall they visit it, neither shall they be done, shall that be done any more. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations shall be gathered unto it, and in the name and to the name of the Lord uh, to Jerusalem, neither shall they walk any more after the imaginations of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north and to the land that I have given them for an inheritance unto their fathers. But I said, let's stop there. <laughs> this, is, this is Jeremiah's answer, so we'll stop there. <laughs> so here we are. God is saying to the people, you are living in rebellion. You're living against what I am wanting you to do. And that's what it said before. So in verse 14, it says, turn, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married unto you. So he's telling the children of Israel, repent. Turn. Turn back to him. He says, I have not released you from my covenant. And this is a beautiful thing about God. God is out there saying, I am going to keep these people no matter what they do. No matter how far from him they get, God says, I am still married to you, and I have not divorced you. Now, he said I, in the previous part of this verse, he said he had divorced Israel because Israel totally had gone away from God. But he's telling Judah, I have not released you, and I'm waiting for you to return. And he's still waiting for them to fully return, uh, even though he's given them their nation back. And this whole description that we're looking at here is talking about the millennial kingdom when Israel will be the center of all that's going on. So as we look into this, we'll see this whole aspect of it. He says, I will take you one a city and two a family and will bring you to Zion. He says, I'm going to bring you back. Not everybody. And this is the key to this. He's not bringing all of them back in this statement. He says, I'm going to bring a city. I'm going to bring back two at a time. He is going to pick out the family members to bring back. And this is what happened in 1948. Many Jews went back to Israel. But not all of the Jews went back to Israel. Now, since then, more and more Jews have been returning to Israel. And many of the Jews have a heart to at least visit Israel to go to Jerusalem. And even many of them are saying, I want to go back. I want to go and live there. But God said he was going to call his people back. And as we look around our world, anti-Semitism is becoming very big again around the world. And there are many Jews that are saying, we want to go back home, we want to go to Israel just because that is a place where we're going to be accepted for who we are. And we're seeing this over and over. More and more Jewish people want to return to Israel. And that fulfills... That fulfills the scriptures. God says, I'm calling my people back. They will, they will come together. And I do believe that as time gets worse, as we get closer to the end times, and we're in end times, but the closer we get into the end times, the more that the Jews are going to say, we need to go back home. 
We need to go to, and they might not be even saying home, we need to go back to Israel where we're going to be accepted as Jews and there won't be all this uh, craziness going on around us. Because we're seeing anti-Semitism really peaking in Europe. It is getting really bad in Europe. It's always been bad in, the, in Russia and most of the communist countries. But it's even starting to pick up in America. Anti-Semitism, it's going to drive the Jews back to Israel. Whether they wanted to or not, <laughs> they're going to be kind of driven back because it's going to be, they're going to look at it and say, well, that's a place that I can be a Jew and nobody's going to be making fun of me. Nobody's going to be threatening me. Nobody's going to be out, other than all the neighbors around them shooting bombs at them. But, but you know, people have said that when you're in Israel, even with all that threat, they feel safe overall. Uh, you know, because it's just some bombs in there, and they've got the missile defenses and everything that knocks most of the bombs out. And so, there's, you know, we have all this going on, and it says, he says, I will bring you to Zion. I will bring you to Jerusalem. Israel. When we see the word Zion, it means it's a poetic word for Jerusalem. So he says, I will bring you to Jerusalem. Now he's talking, this prophecy is going out to the southern kingdom who hasn't been dispersed yet. That he's telling them that you are going to be dispersed. You are going to be going around, around the world in captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar comes along, and the first thing he does with them is he drags all the wealthy people out, all the important people out, and scatters them all through Babylon. So that when they finally get released to go back 70 years later, many of them are saying, well, it's been 70 years. I'm happy in the town that I'm in. I've got, we've got our own little community. We've got, our, we've got our shops. We're happy. And they did not want to return back to Israel, the land of Israel. And so much so, if you remember when Ezra and Nehemiah were building up the, the nation, no, they had to force people to move into Jerusalem. They took one in ten people that were in Israel and moved them by force, saying, you are moving to Jerusalem, so that they could populate the capital. <laughs> They're going, the capital has to have people in it, so we're going to make some of you come here and live in the capital. And they, and they brought them back. And here we're seeing God says, I'm going to bring you back to Zion. Now this is partially filled at the end of the Babylonian captivity. But then again, it was partially filled in 1948 when the Israel became a nation. But it will be completely filled during the prior to the tribulation when God brings his people together so that he can protect them as a nation which he will be the one protecting them during the, during the tribulation period. And then they will be the center of everything during the reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom. So all of this is going to be part, and it's all part of, laid out in this, in this, this prophecy and many others. <laughs> so, and then he goes on there, and I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And so here... You know, this is something most New Testament people believe that they never knew that pastors existed in the Old Testament. <laughs> but it's been out there. It literally means teachers and shepherds, you know, just as it does for us. God says, I will give you teachers after my heart, he says. Those that, those that are going to be like me, the ones that are going to show love, compassion, and lift you up. Jeremiah uses the word pastor several times. So if you... He's the only one in the Old Testament that I know that uses pastor. Uh, but he uses it a lot. <laughs> and he says, I will give you these after my heart. They shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. And this is the purpose of a pastor teacher of a church. To help people with knowledge and understanding of the word of God. They get trained and they are able to teach. Because I've heard people, well, no, we don't need pastors and teachers. And they go, well, you're probably right. you got the Holy Spirit, but it's a lot easier to learn if somebody teaches you. Uh, and I've done this the hard way myself. You know, many times when I was repairing cars, I would have this manual in front of me. <laughs> and it would take me all day to do a three-hour job <laughs> because I was trying to learn from a manual. Then I'd have somebody come and help me, and the job would go flying by really quick. It's the same thing here. It's much easier to learn if somebody is there teaching you 
helping you learn. And God is saying, I will give you teachers after my heart. They want to lift you up and to, to teach. Verse 16 says, And it shall come to pass, when you multiply and increase in the land, in those days, says the Lord, they shall no more say, The ark of the covenant of the Lord, neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. You tell this to a Jewish person who's waiting, even today, they're waiting for the temple to be built. They're waiting for the Ark of the Covenant to be put into the Holy of Holies. This to them is something that they cannot even understand. We're not even going to think about the Ark of the Covenant. We're not going to think about the fact that we have to go to Jerusalem to worship God. And Jesus said the same thing when he was talking to the woman of the, at the well in Samaria. And she goes, well, where should we worship? Your people say it's on Jerusalem and our people say it's here and he goes there's coming a time when you will worship in spirit and truth it won't matter where here's what they're talking about because in the Jewish mind at this time to worship God you had to go to the temple now those who were truly on his side and truly knew him understood they didn't have to but most people did not understand that they could worship God everywhere now, they knew they couldn't sacrifice to God everywhere because that wasn't part of what they could do. But they didn't really understand that they could worship God everywhere. They had this idea that to worship God, I have to go to the, to the synagogue and to the, the temple. The sad thing is so many Christians have this same idea. Can't worship God unless I go to church. Now, I would admit it's a little easier to worship God with other people worshiping God and kind of pushes you that direction. But we can worship God anywhere we can read our bible and get into prayer and, and sing songs anywhere that we're at and just worship god it it's a wonderful thing just to this is one of the reasons i do like choruses because they're easy to remember and you can just sing a chorus at any time that you want and and praise god because when I try to sing the hymns, I know most of the hymn, most of the hymn by heart, but I don't know all of it, and I'm having to make up words as I get to certain places, and which I do anyway as I'm leading songs. So you all know that I make up the words, I don't stop singing. <laughs> but it is one of those things that the choruses make it easy for me to worship God, and learning Scripture to music and being able to sing Scripture can be easy to bring worship to God and just lift him up and it's so much fun to be able to do this kind of thing and just say God I just want to worship you I don't need to be anywhere now that doesn't belittle church don't get me wrong church is very important because it gives us a chance to meet together as a body and where two or three are gathered together there I am in the midst of you said Jesus and we're encouraged to lift up our voices we're encouraged to share what's going on and here he's saying there's coming a time when you're not even going to think about the Ark of the Covenant. All right? And that is where they had to go to worship. And the, once a year, to have their sins forgiven, they would come for Yom Kippur, offer the sacrifice, and the high priest would take it into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on the, on the mercy seat and on the Ark of the Covenant, and they would be forgiven for one more year. What a way to live. Now, what if you died the day before Yom Kippur? <laughs> you know, I missed forgiveness by one day. Uh, been terrible. Uh, and he says, you're not going to remember. And I love this. It, it shall, the Ark of the Covenant, you, you'll send no more the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Neither shall it come to mind. Neither shall they visit it and neither shall it be done anymore. He says, you're not even going to think about the Ark of the Covenant. This is the millennial kingdom. Jesus is reigning on the throne of Jerusalem. They're not thinking about the sacrifices. They're not thinking about the temple. They're not thinking about Yom Kippur and the forgiveness of their sin. The king of kings is sitting on the throne. And it doesn't tell us there that it is going to be the thousand-year reign. Uh, things are going to be as close to perfect as they can be in a fallen world. Jesus is going to redeem the lifespan of people. He's going to make the animals tame again. And the people are going to live in the paradise that they were supposed to be able to live in. 
until the end of a thousand years when Satan is released. And I was listening to one pastor, and he's going, well, I don't understand why Satan has to be released. I don't understand that plan at all. I think it's very clear. Man, Satan's greatest lie to man is that if everything was perfect, we would be good. And if we just had a perfect existence, nothing would go wrong. So we're going to have a thousand years of doing good, being forced to do good, not having anything bad happen to them, you know, per se. And then Satan's going to be released and the bulk of the world is going to turn against God anyway. Um, well, it'd be a lot of generations, a thousand years. But we're back to living a long time because we're, gonna, we're told in the Old Testament that if somebody dies at 100, they'll be considered a child during that period of time. So if 100 is a child, then we're back to living six, seven, eight, nine hundred years again. Similar. There's still sin. We still have our sin nature. So we're not back to Eden, but it will be... The animals will be at peace. The storms will be, will be under control. The world will be close to what it was supposed to be. Adam and Eve had a sin nature. No. They did not have a sin nature. When they sinned, they got the sin nature and passed it on to us. And they were the first one that had a perfect environment and didn't live up to. Didn't live up. So the, the lie that people are believing, and you hear it all the time. You know, if we just had bad, didn't have bad influences, everybody would be, be, be good. Uh, the age of Aquarius is coming when everything will be perfect and we will have no, no problems. Well, it is coming. Jesus is going to reign. We're not going to have any problems and people are still going to sin when you come to the end of it. Because man's nature is to sin. And those who don't want to follow God are going to turn away from him and sin. And this will be the last, because this is the big lie that's being told right now. If we just had this environment where, you know, you, did, you, never, you had plenty of money, so you didn't have to, to not be able to afford food. You didn't have to worry about your, your medical bills. You didn't have to worry about this. You didn't have to worry about this. And, you know, nobody would steal because everybody has all their, you know, and nobody would hurt anybody else because everybody would have what they needed. And that is the big lie that's out there. And people believe it because it is this pie in the sky. We can't experience it. Well, the problem is God is going to give it to us. And we're still, well, we won't because we'll have our glorified bodies, those of us who are saved. But mankind will still fail when given the opportunity, even though everything is back to long life, friendly animals, uh, plenty of food, plenty of health, everything is going to be provided for them just as they say they want, and they will still sin at the end of that time and turn against God because it is really just the lie. Satan is lying to us, and even though God gives us what Satan is saying would be the right answer, we're still going to find out that we, as a people, cannot be good. Now, God will reign with an iron rod. He will make us be good for a thousand years or make the world be good for a thousand years. But they will still be wanting to, rebel, wanting to rebel. Even though they're not starving, there's no storms, there's no, no animals killing them, there's nothing going wrong, they will still rebel against God. Because... But that's the lie that Satan is telling us. If everything was perfect, then everybody would, everybody would be good. Uh, the sin nature is not going to be tamed. The only thing that can get us out of the sin nature is for the sin nature to be crucified by God, and then we can live according to his righteousness because he crucifies the sin nature. Without that crucifixion of the sin nature, we will live after the sin nature because deep in our heart, we want what we want. We want to be number one. It doesn't matter if I'm equal to everybody else and I'm healthy and I've got everything I need. If I am not better than everybody else, then there's a problem. And that's the sin nature that will be driven into all of this. And here this statement is that you know, this is coming a time when you're not going to be looking to worship God in Zion. And in verse 17, it says, At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall be gathered unto it. To the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem, 
neither shall they walk anymore in the imaginations of their evil hearts. So here we are in the millennial kingdom. Jerusalem will be called the throne of God because Jesus will be sitting there. He will be the perfect king. Now, when we look at this, if you look at governments that are out there, everybody will freely admit that the best government that you could have would be a monarchy with a benevolent leader, one who cares for their people. Now, most monarchies do not stay benevolent because the adage is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Most monarchs get power and get corrupted, and instead of being benevolent or good, they become malevolent or evil. Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years as a perfect, benevolent God and king that loves this world. Huh? Right, monarchy is kingdom. Now, right now, we think the best government pretty much is democracy, or we have. Democracies are bad because they are mob rule. And it's whatever the mob decides. And when our country started, it was a good, good start. We were mostly righteous. We were mostly Christian, following God's rules. But the more we've abandoned God, the more the mob starts taking over and says, well, we don't like these godly rules. We want to be free to do whatever we want. And we're seeing it over the years, more and more sin being accepted, more and more evil being accepted. And the monarch uh, and democracies fail. Communism fails and socialism fails because they're based on the society, the idea that man is basically good. If we just take care of everybody, they'll, they'll all work. You know, the government will own everything and everybody will be really nice because they don't have to buy anything and they'll work real hard because they're going to benefit the people. Well, any of those communist societies fall apart because they look at it and say, why am I working for everybody else when I'm going to get the same amount? Well, they do, but even if, it, even if they didn't, it still wouldn't work. Uh, one of the problems I'm seeing in restaurants is socialism has taken over in there. We have this nice community pot of tips. So what ends up happening? The people who work really hard to get their tips, they put in hundreds of dollars into that tip jar. The bozo who can't even serve a cup of water, who was only getting a buck or two a night, you know, in tips gets a full share of the tips. How long does that person who was working real hard to get the tips continue to work real hard and split their tips with the person who can't? Now, in theory, it should work well. We're all working real hard. We all do really well getting tips, and then we split it. In theory, it works good. The only problem is there's always more lazy people out there that take advantage of the hard workers and eventually, the lazy person says, hey, I got lots of money, and I didn't really have to do anything. So they stop even working, doing the little bit they did. But then the person who's working real hard says, the heck with this. I'm not going to keep working so hard. And everybody loses out in the long run. So socialism, communism doesn't work because it's based on the idea that man is basically good. Democracy doesn't work for the same reason. It's still based on the idea that people are basically good and will make choices for their, for their government for what's best for the people, and they don't. You know, listen to our last election. Both sides were saying, vote for me, and I will give you. you know, I'll give you free, free medical. I'll forgive you, forgive your, your school debts. I'll, we'll do this. We'll do that. As soon as we get to that place, we're no longer doing what's good for the country. We're doing what's good for me, and we get bad government. Now, a monarchy is the best format as long as the king is good. If the king is bad, it's a terrible place to be. And this is why we're looking forward to the day Jesus reigns because he'll be the perfect king. And he'll be the perfect good king. And that is the best form of government that you can have. The only problem in human sense, we never have a true benevolent king. They always get corrupted over time. But Jesus will be this king, and all the nations will come to Jerusalem. This is what the Jewish people are waiting for. Even to this day, they're waiting for the Messiah to come and for them to be the chief of all the world. So they are still believing it? Those who believe the scriptures. 
This is where it's hard. The Orthodox Jew is definitely waiting for this. They believe in the scriptures. The Reformed, mediocre Jews, they're all kind of hoping that it's true, and then the rest of them, they don't even believe the word. And it's really funny when you talk to Jewish people because many of them don't believe in God, but they'll tell you that God gave them, they gave them their land, he gave them their nation, but they don't believe in God. They're a very strange group of people. They believe a Messiah will come. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't recognize him as the Messiah. Now, it will, according to Zephaniah, they will recognize him. Because it says, when I come and, you, and they see the scars and they ask, who gave you these scars? And he said, I got them in a house of, of my friends. They will recognize that he is who he said he was and they will recognize it when they see him. But right now they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Even though he fulfilled all the birth, all this stuff, they don't recognize him because they don't recognize the idea that the Messiah was going to suffer, even though Isaiah 53 was very clear that the Messiah was going to suffer and other verses. But they did not see this. They, they expected, and even the disciples had a problem with this. You know, they were all waiting for, when are you going to you know, throw Rome off and, and you're going to take over the, the leadership of this and we're going to be the, the head of everything and everybody's going to come and worship us and we are going to be the new Rome for, all, when for their mindset. You know, we're going to be the center of the, of, the, of, the, of the world. And they did not understand. They never, and this is why when Jesus talked about dying and, and rising again and, and all of that, they, they did not hear it because that is not what they expected. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit came along and Jesus revealed to them after the resurrection, these are the things that I told you. you know, and the Holy Spirit was coming into them and revealing to them the scriptures in a new light. And this is when a Jewish person gets hold of the fact that Jesus is Messiah, it opens up their eyes to all the verses that they had never understood. The other problem with most Jews is the only part that the Jews absolutely think is, is, is scripture or the, is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The law and the prophets, and the law is what's important and the prophets are okay. And yet it's the prophets that talk mostly about Jesus. The law does too. The law talks a lot about Jesus, but it's very veiled in the, in the, in the law. You get into the prophets and you see God, you see Jesus as Messiah all over the all over the prophets, and most Jews never read the prophets hardly at all. And in synagogue, they'll spend the entire year, and they'll go through the five books of the, of the Pentateuch, and they've got about a five-year plan to get through the prophets. So even when you do hear something, it's one time, and then five years later, you might hear about it again, and then five years later, and they're not interpreting most of those as pictures of Jesus. They're going to go, this is what the Messiah is going to do. And it's hard to get them to accept and even in the Pentateuch, they take the book of Genesis and write it off to good stories. They're not even going to necessarily believe that they are actual events. They are stories that give them moral ways of living. So the average Jew, if you ask about the creation of the world, will, will not be real hard on the fact that God created it in six days. They're very likely to believe in evolution. Because it's a nice, wonderful story that God started everything. But that's about as far as they go. They call it a story. Which is why we had to be very careful with our children and our grandchildren and our nieces and nephews that we don't really make them think that these are stories, that they are, are myths. Uh, we want to be very careful that when we talk about creation, that we talk about it as a real, actual event that God did. We talk about Noah and the ark. We say, this actually happened. Uh, and not put it in a book of fairy tales or anything else that would make it look like something that is not true. Because kids pick up on these things a little bit. Uh, and you know, we want to be very careful about how do we show them these things. Uh, Ken Ham, who does a lot of answers in Genesis, he talks about how many Sunday schools, and I remember this really well growing up in Sunday school, had an ark, little tiny ark, with animals hanging out all the windows. And why they had windows, I have no idea. But they're hanging out the windows and over the edges and everything. And that impresses kids with a very, well, that's a silly story. Nobody, nobody would be able to survive a flood. And then when somebody challenges them, 
They're going, yeah, I remember that picture in, in Sunday school. You're right, there is no way that that could, that could survive a flood. We need to be careful what we communicate because if we communicate what the Bible says about the ark, that, that thing can hold an entire zoo or two or three. It had the windows around the, around the top for ventilation. It was well ventilated. But it was a boat that was big enough to hold everything. And a matter of fact, when you put it to scale, you put an elephant or something next to it, it dwarfs, the, it dwarfs even the elephant, or, or even if you put dinosaurs on it, which I'm sure there were dinosaurs in the, in the ark, it dwarfs the dinosaurs. Uh, I mean, I loved looking at the videos of Answers in Genesis building their ark, building the recreation of the ark, and they had these huge, huge cranes putting things in place, and the cranes were dwarfed. The, the huge cranes were dwarfed by the ark. You know, and it's like, it just brought to you how big was this vessel? You know, how really big was this vessel? The ark would not even be able to sit in a football field. Okay? Uh, so we want to be able to really get hold of how big this thing is. And we do our children injustice if we make them believe these little fairy tale pictures and we you know, make a fairy tale out of Adam and Eve being created and being with the animals and being in a perfect environment. And if we write off those first, verse, those first chapters, then we really take away from the power of the word of God. Because the next statement is, if those ones aren't true, why should I believe any of it? And this is why I have to take them literally. If they're not true, then I've got a problem because what do I pick and choose as being true in the, in the word of God? And the Jewish people have pretty much said the first five books are God's word, and the first couple chapters are stories. Good stories, but not, not to be taken literal. And not every one of them. I mean, there are those who take it literally, but for the most part, they just say they're good stories. They teach morals. They're, they're basically parables. You know, they're, they've got a good point, and we can learn something from them. And that's how they take them. So we got way off track there, but that is the way most of it looking. Unfortunately, this is the way most Christians look at the Word of God. Well, I can take it or leave it. You know, some of it's really good, some of it is really true, and some of it is, you know, it's misguided. It was written, written thousands of years ago, and they didn't know science, they didn't know this, they didn't know that. So uh, we can we can drop those parts that don't match what I think science says. The problem is when you really understand science, the Bible fits science perfectly. And if you try to not follow the scriptures, science does not fit very well in everything it says. And we need to be able to understand all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction in righteousness, and instruction in righteousness. All of it is right there. If any part of this word is not true, I don't know what to believe and I'm going to throw the book away. Because if I had to start picking and choosing what's true and what's not true, I'm in trouble. Because number one, I'm not smart enough to pick and choose what's, what's true and what's not true. And I'm going to pick the wrong parts and, 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 accept and throw away the, the wrong parts. So I am going to take what God says. It's all true. And I'm going to take him for what he says. Because many people take the first part and say it's all poetic. It's all just stories. And you can't really depend on it. And once you go there, you're in trouble. And this is always going to be the problem. If we can't trust the word of God, I might as well throw it away, live, eat, and, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow I die because that's all I have if the word of God is not true. Now, and that's not a good way to live. But if the word of God is not true, and I really am just going to be worm food at the end of my life, then I might as well get as much almost pleasure out of the world as I could get which is why the world lives that way. What they don't realize is that by following God, I have had the best life following God and the joyful life and, and a satisfied life. And because of what he's done in this life, I know that he's going to be honest and good for the rest of all of eternity. I have no question. I can, I can challenge people, what if you're wrong? Well, when life is over, I'm just one for Well, what if you're wrong? And there is an eternity. You know, but be ready, as I said, because they'll turn it around and go, well, what if you're wrong? I have lost nothing. I have had a very enjoyable, good life that has been well 
You know, so if this world was all there is, I've lost nothing because God has blessed me so much. But because he's blessed me so much, I know that it's true that he's going to take care of me for eternity. And that's the good news. I don't have to guess. And even if somehow it is wrong, I have lived a very good, enjoyable life and I've been at peace for the most part. So we want to understand this. All right. Um, they shall say to the Lord at Jerusalem, neither shall they walk anymore in the imagination of their evil heart. During the tribulation, they are not going to live after the imagination, the stubbornness of their evil, evil hearts. God is going to be putting in them or controlling them to not be disobedient for a thousand years. Now, the only one who can... Huh? God is going to rule with an iron rod so he'll make it so they're not being disobedient for a thousand years. Now, how many times in this world are we starting to get into crimes of intent? You know, if you murder somebody, it's bad. But if you murder them in order to cause great harm because of their race or their color or anything, it is worse. All right? Uh, they're trying to judge our thoughts. But they can't. They can't judge my thoughts. If I go out and I hit somebody in a car, you know, by accident, and they just happen to be the wrong color or the wrong, wrong gender or the wrong this, that, they can say, well, you did it on purpose. Now you're going to be charged because you did it on purpose. Well, you're prejudiced. You're prejudiced. You were prejudiced against them. All right. Hate yeah, hate crime. That was the word I was looking for, hate crimes. Yeah. You, you committed a hate crime. Well, as far as I'm concerned, all crimes are hate crimes because you have somebody that you dislike, whether you know, they got more money than you, they're less money than you, they, they made you mad, whatever it is, there's a hate, hate element in all, all those crimes. The only one who can know for sure what was in your heart is God. And I, I don't know that this is what's going to happen, but I picture in the millennial kingdom, you're getting ready to go, you know, I need to go out and I'm, and I'm going to steal something because they got more than me. And all of a sudden, the angels are knocking on your door and saying, uh, no, not going to do that. We do what? You were going to go steal. No, I wasn't. Well, yes, we know. <laughs> we know exactly what you were going to do. Now, I don't know if it's going to be quite that bad, but it does say that they will not walk after the imaginations of their evil hearts. God is going to do something. It could be just that simple, too. It may not even be. It may not even be the angel showing up. It could be God just zapping you with the conscience saying, no, it's wrong. Yeah. All right? Yeah. <laughs> but, at the, but at the end of that time, this is part of the reason that at the end of a thousand years, when Satan offers them the opportunity to rebel against this God who has made them be obedient, a lot of people are going to say, sign me up. I'm tired of following this God. Even though I've had a perfect life and my, my, my health has been good and my, I've had plenty of food and, and all, all my needs have been met, I am tired of not being able to do what I want. And this has been one of the things I have talked to people because sometimes people, well, God's going to take all people to heaven. What a terrible place heaven would be for those who don't want to be with God in the first place. Because you hear it all the time. Well, I don't want to be worshiping God for the rest of my life. And I go, all right, well, you know what? I can't think of anything better than to worship God the rest of my life. You hear it from people a lot. Well, heaven's going to be so boring. All we do is worship God. Well, I would love to spend about a million years just worshiping God. Maybe after a million years, I might want to do something else. But I can picture just worshiping God as being the greatest thing that I could do. And that is a true statement. They have not even worshipped God if they don't understand true worship. And there have been times in my worship when it just feels like I'm in the presence of God and say, if this is even a small taste of heaven, I can't wait to get there. This is the problem that is out there is people don't understand God. How do you explain to somebody what it means to be one of his children, one of his adopted children and being a Christian? If you think about it, we didn't even understand it until we got there. And sometimes we didn't understand it when we first got there. We had to learn what it meant to be one of his children and really appreciate what we have. And it's hard. But when you get there and you're saying, there's nothing 
better than being one of his children. There's nothing better than doing his will rather than my own will. All through the millennial kingdom, these people are going to be made to be obedient, made to be following him, and they're going to be looking for the way out. My heart wants to do something wrong. I wanted to do this, and you're not letting me walk after the imagination of my heart, and I am going to rebel. No more free will? No, I don't know that there won't be no free will. Limited. <laughs> Limited. Now, for us during that period of time, because we have been raptured, we've gone to heaven, we have our glorified body. We, it's going to be careful how I say this. We're not going to have a free will, but we've actually given our will completely over to him so that we do, our evil heart has been taken away, and we will do what we want to do, which is to serve him without anything coming against it, and it'll be a pure, I am going to, I don't have the free will to choose evil because I don't want to, and God's going to give me the ability to, to live after the way that I want to live because I made my change here. And plus, there's no evil up there, so you don't see it. When we're ruling with him on this earth, we will see the evil, but we will, we will not have this in nature nor the desire to because we made our decision. And the fun thing for us is our decision then is permanent. And we're not going to sin anymore. We're not going to desire to sin anymore. We're not going to forget. We're not going to backslide. We're going to stay following him in all that we do. These people are being forced into it. Talk about this. You hear it a lot. Well, you can't legislate morality. This lifetime, as short as it is, even if we live a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, is still a short time compared to eternity. And that short period of time determines our position in eternity forever. That's hard to imagine. That short a period of time determines your place for eternity. And people don't understand that aspect of it. As soon as you don't accept the word of God for what it says and start making stories out of it, spiritualizing it, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Uh, take things out of context, uh, say, well, it doesn't really say this, it says it means this. And as soon as you start taking it away from the literal, you're going to get into trouble. Which is why in our How to Study the Bible course, I say the first thing to do is it is literal. Unless it is very, very obvious that it's not literal and it's being poetic. And I love the, the Psalm 94 where it says, and God will wrap us under his wings with feathers it's not saying that God is a great big bird wrapping his bird wings around us. It's just picturing the, the, the bird protecting its young uh, from the storms and, and trials. So that one you look at and you say, okay, here we have a figurative picture. God is not a great big bird up there in the sky. There are places where the Bible is clearly figurative. But if it's something that can easily be taken as literal, Take it as literal. Even if it doesn't make sense how it can be literal, take it as literal. And the other one that I like to bring out is when Revelation talks about the, the uh, two prophets outside Jerusalem. For decades and centuries, they're going, it said the whole world would watch them die and the whole world would see them resurrected. And they're going, it has to be spiritual because there's no way the whole world can watch them. Well, in our day and age, we know exactly how it would be. There'd be a satellite feed on them all day long, 24-7, the, the crazy Jewish prophets outside the temple. See, that's what's amazing, how that's in the Bible, and back then, that would be, like, really impossible. And that's why they took it as, as figurative as, as, as not literal, because they're going, there's just no way it can happen. We know exactly how that would happen. And we can even picture the channel uh, drone or something above them, watching them 24-7. People are going to look at them as a curiosity and be looking at them thinking it's a joke yeah. and wondering, well, how are they doing these miracles? What, what trickery in the camera are they using for these guys to get burned? What trickery are, the, are they using for these? And people are going to be trying to figure out how is this being, being tricked? So it's going to be literal. All of what's been going on with COVID and all the stuff that has been pushed into our lives with COVID is part of the end time setup. Now, I'm not saying it is the end times, but it's part of the setup. They want to know where we are at all times, what we're doing, who we're near, who we're talking to. 
especially for us Christians. If they find out that I've talked to this person, this person, this person, this person, they're going to go to those people and say, well, what was, what was he talking about? What were you all talking about? And, it, and it, this, the, it's being sold as we're going to protect you against COVID. So when they got COVID, we'll know everybody that they have touched you. But it is much more than that. They're desensitizing us. Let me go one more verse. I want to finish 18. In those days, the house of Judah shall walk with the house of Israel, and they shall come together out of the land of the north to the land that I have given them for an inheritance unto your fathers. Unto your fathers. We're talking about Abraham. So he says, I'm going to bring you together. And at this time, the northern kingdom has been taken by Assyria and is in captivity. And he says, there's coming a time when I'm going to put the northern and southern kingdom back together and you are going to walk together. Now, from their point of view, it's like, that's impossible, God. They're, they're conquered. They're all, they're all over. They've been scattered all over Assyria. There's no way they're all coming back together. And from their point of view, there's no way we want them to come back together because they were so bad. They were, they were our enemy for millennia. And God, you're going to say uh, for centuries, and you're, to, and you're going to be saying we're coming back together. That is something they can't even understand. And God says, I'm going to bring them for the inheritance unto your fathers. Basically going back to Abraham and said, I promised Abraham this and I'm going to deliver. I'm going to deliver on my promise to Abraham. Abraham was given an unconditional promise. His children were going to be a great nation. They were going to number the uh, the sand, the stars of the sky and the sand, sand of the sea of the sand and God says I'm going to make that happen it's going to happen it was an unconditional promise and even though they did not deserve to have it come true God says I am going to make it happen and Israel has come back to be a nation twice now they were destroyed by Babylon and scattered now, they were only gone for 70 years back then, so it was pretty easy to bring them back together. And God brought them back together after 70 years. 70 AD, Rome scattered them. And they stayed scattered until 1948 and was brought back as a nation. And no nation has ever been broken up for 1,800 years, almost 1,900 years, and become a nation again except for Israel, because God blessed them. And God says, you are mine, and I am going to make my word come true. And he's brought them back, and he's drawing more and more of them in, into the nation. And we're seeing more and more fulfillment of scriptures every year, which is, this makes it a very exciting period of time to live. Because we get to, we're living in the end times. It's a scary time to live, but it's also exciting. Now, the problem is, when we live in the exciting point, 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 times of, the, of life, it's also scary times of life because bad things are happening. People go, I'd love to have lived in Jesus' day. No, you wouldn't. It was a terrible time to live. The only good thing was that Jesus was there. <laughs> and I've heard people go, I would love to have lived in Jesus' time. I'm going, yeah, where would you have lived? What do you mean? I'm going, well, you're not a Jew, so you probably wouldn't have been in Israel. So where exactly would you have lived? You wouldn't have been hanging with Jesus during that time. If you're German, you would have been out in the Gaelic world uh, living, living by your wits as a, as, a, as a barbarian fighting the Romans. It would have been a good time to have been with Jesus on one side, but it was also a hard time. He had people against him all the time. He had people trying to kill him. He had people trying to trip him up. He had people trying to buy off his, uh, his servants to try to, to uh, betray him, and Judas finally took him up on it. Yeah, all of this happening. Okay, I want to. I want to live back when Daniel lived. Okay, we'd face the lion's den and the fiery furnace and captivity. and okay. captivity. But you do. I'm, you understand what I'm saying, though. No matter what story you go back to, it wasn't all, it wasn't all a very good place to be. And you were going. I. I really wish I could have been them. Yeah. Uh, no, you probably do not wish that you were them. Even Solomon's time, it was bad there. Yeah, you've been paying high taxes. Yeah. Really high taxes. <laughs> Time and Bruce's time's not too long. Go to Moab because uh, there was famine in the land. 
famine in the land. Then she lost all of her all of her male relatives. And yeah, she went back. She was poor. So there was oh, pretty tough, so pretty tough life. Can, we really romanticize Esther. Yeah. She was forced to go into this beauty pageant to become part of the harem of the king. Every beautiful woman out of all 120 provinces, so at least 120, if they took one, the most beautiful of every province, went into this event, and she was just one of many. For practical purposes, she was stuck in the harem. Well, this beauty pageant wasn't just pure beauty pageant either, so you, you ended up being sleeping with the king on your night that you were with him, so every part has its bad side as well. There's always a downside to all the, the good that happened because it was the downside that they persevered through to get to the good. And we're in the middle, and when we're in the middle of our downside and we're ready to quit, we need to remember that God is faithful and there is a good side coming through God's blessing. And how that good side is going to come is going to be totally different because many died and went, you know, went to heaven to get their good side. Some of them walked through victoriously. Some got swallowed by a great fish and had, yeah, to, had, to, be, had to be in digestive juices of the fish for three days and then got spit up. He still wasn't a happy camper. We just want to be careful because it is very easy to forget the providence of God and that he is in control. And we have to concentrate on the fact that God is in control. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we get ready to go. Lord, we lift up this young child that's been admitted into mental health. We ask you to touch her, help her to see you and be able to turn to you for true mental healing. Lord, we ask you to go with us. Help us to see you in all that's going on and that we'll make decisions to seek after you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.